you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. Mr. President, I'm here! I voted for you! Wait a minute. That guy on the grassy knoll's got a gun. He's gonna shoot the president. Holy smokes, I've gotta do something. All right, Lee, time to become an American hero. Double Deuce 22 November Network and Neopolis Media Group bring you the Lone Gunman Podcast with your host, Rob Clark. Stay tuned. Be right there. Now here in Dealey Plaza, 1963, we're coming north on Houston Street, turning left on Elm Street. Well, about two or three meters down Elm Street, the first shot rang out, and it, it sounded like a firecracker. I didn't know exactly what it was. It was up above over my right shoulder. You can tell by some of the pictures that I was being. Billy Joe was looking over to the right. Within five seconds, a second shot hit it, hit the president in the head, and a bloom of of bloody matter, brain matter, and went up, and I rode right through it. Talk about somebody feeling bad. I really felt bad. What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Lone Gunman Podcast. This is episode number ninety-three. And I have a special guest with me today. His name is Chuck O'Chelly. He has a radio show, which you can hear over on American Freedom Radio, the uh, O'Chelly Effect. And you can also read him on zenandthecar.com. And he is also a fellow member of the Neapolis Media Group. Chuck, welcome to the show, my friend. Oh, it's great to be here, Rob. You know, I've been listening to a lot of your episodes, and uh, I'm real happy to uh, come on this particular show, The Lone Gunman Podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been too long. I've been a guest on your show before, and uh, I should have had you on before now. It's just been it's been crazy. Um, you do a lot more radio shows than I do, um, but you're here now. And I wanted to have you on because I guess it was a... November 22nd, you did a four-hour uh, super show, I guess, you know, all about the assassination. And you had uh, Professor James Fetzer on your show, and he said some pretty, uh, 
I guess, lack of a better word, outlandish things? Well, isn't that just like saying that uh, Jim Fetzer was breathing, right? Uh, this is the this is the way it goes, Rob. <laughs> you know, true, true. Everybody, everybody knows Uncle Fester. Excuse me, James Fetzer. Uh, you know, we we all know this guy. This is the uh, the individual that tells us that pretty much every single piece of evidence is faked. That uh, you know he has the shooting solution. I'm not sure how many shooters he's up to at this point, but I, I think it's somewhere around uh, eight eight different perches for snipers. Uh, something yeah. like uh, a minimum of 12, 14 shots there in Dealey Plaza. You know, and we're not even going to broach the subject of. You know, the guy's never met a conspiracy he didn't love. So, you know, uh, any outlandish conspiracy theory is absolutely one of those things that he embraces, uh, does his own little radio show, you know, goes and tours around the country, appears at conferences. Isn't it wonderful that we have Uncle Fester, I mean, James Fetzer, to uh, to present us with the truth? If If, if you're not aware, that was sarcasm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he is, he is out there and I don't know who's listening to him, but he is definitely out there. He is definitely spouting this stuff on the airwaves, um, all over the place. And, you know, it'd be nice if we had, uh, a counter, you know, it, somebody doing what he was doing, but, but doing good, um, instead of what I call poisoning minds, um, now, the reason I wanted to talk to you is you've done a lot of uh, interviews with a lot of these Dallas cops, haven't you, in the past? Well, yeah. So why don't we set the context for the audience real quick, right? Uh, okay. the, this super show that you were talking about, and I just want to give a little more little more background about it. Uh, what, what happened was, you know, the majority of really truthfully, uh, most of the good researchers were busy that weekend because, well, it was November 22nd and we all know there are various conferences, there are various get togethers, some are advertised, some are not, Rob, right? So you have a lot of people that I probably could have tried to obtain as speakers that weekend. Uh, because it was a special broadcast. I only normally do two hours, but I was going to give four hours. And actually, I had the network agree that if we had more people show up, if we had a whole lot of callers that wanted to participate in the show and things like this, that actually I could have ran up to six hours or seven hours if I wanted to. Because after 52 years, I noticed that the mainstream media certainly wasn't paying the proper attention to the subject, uh, you know, and even the alleged, you know, individuals that are involved in historical revisionism had not given it its proper attention as far as the media was concerned this particular year. Now, I know it wasn't one of the big anniversaries and all that. And, of course, you have your standard, you know, two, three conferences in Dallas and a get-together on the East Coast or two or four and a few people out West getting together and even international conferences happening that weekend, right? So, you know, when it came down to it, I was offered a couple of different people to come on that show. And the first person was actually John Hankey. Now, John Hankey, I'm sure your listeners are aware that uh, John Hankey is the guy who gave us Bush to, you know, uh, excuse me, JFK to the Bush connection, uh, which later turned into Dark Legacy. And, of course, this is one of these guys who practically tries to put a rifle in the hands of former President George H.W. Bush. 
Right. So let's not even get into that subject because, hey, we didn't get into that subject with John Hankey, did we? Immediately, we were confronted with the Zapruder film has been altered, has been faked, uh, you know, the limo stop, all this stuff, right? Uh, and we never even got to his whole thesis about George H.W. Bush being responsible for the murder of our 35th president, did we, Rob? No, that's not a bad thing because uh... – no, it's not a bad thing, but, you know, John Hankey, as far out there as, like, I think he is, and a lot of other people think he is, is actually kind of an entertaining, you know, video maker, and seemed pretty reasonable, right? You know, in that first hour, yeah, we were disagreeing a bit, and there was, you could hear the consternation, uh, you know, but I thought it was worthwhile to have that conversation, and let's not forget that Carmine Sabastano was with me uh, during the entire show. You didn't hear him much in the John Hankey hour, <laughs> right? But uh, but this is where that whole subject of the Dallas police first comes up, Rob. Right. Now, why does it come up? Well, see, these guys all to a man, according to this particular uh, uh, set of theories, uh, state that the limo stopped, right? Uh, according to this group of individuals that sort of revolve in the Fetzer universe. Um and meanwhile, we haven't even gotten to Fetzer yet. So, okay, we're all done with that. There wasn't much accomplished with Hanky. Then in the second hour, we go to the big gun, which is the individual who seems as though he doesn't even have to take a breath. I mean, if you think I can talk a lot, Jim Fetzer does not need to take a breath or a drink in order to deliver his extremely, well, let's just be kind here, uh, 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 textured opinions <laughs> regarding all the scenarios surrounding the assassination. And and if you don't believe me, take a listen to uh, to that show and you'll hear that there is literally no break in his speech pattern uh, while he delivers this very wild, very far-flung uh, scenario that involves so many people, so many different angles, and really, to my mind, every single possible discredited uh, you know, angle on the assassination you can imagine, except that he no longer seems to support James Files as the Grassy Knoll shooter. But outside there's of that, hmm? <laughs> I said, there's something, right? <laughs> well, yeah, you got to give him some look, uh, credit where credit's due, Rob, right? Um, so we have no longer the support of James Files, but after he goes through this large shooting scenario and telling me all about how the Zapruder film has been altered, everything has been altered, and, you know, the limo stop and all this stuff, he actually gets to Judith Very Baker. And at that point, even with all of these insane, far-flung things that he was saying, I mean, at that point, I had to say something. I mean, I had to cut him off because otherwise I, I could have just sat back and he wouldn't have breathed for the entire hour. Um but but anyway, that was the cutoff point, and what is the issue? Well, there was a guy named Fred Newcomb some years ago who uh, who conducted some interviews of these police officers, and I'm well aware of these interviews. Everybody who is a veteran researcher has heard about these interviews, has read the transcripts, or has had a copy of the tapes uh, at some point or another, and and they make a very big deal, this group that revolves around Fetzer again, about the assertions made in these tapes allegedly that every one of the motorcycle uh, uh, cops who were in the motorcade that day, um, you know, had reported that the limo stopped for this 30 seconds or 
you know, I don't even know what the total theory is, but I mean, it, it seems as though 20 seconds, 30 seconds, 90 seconds, they have all sorts of stop times that would have had to have been exerted, you know, or, or exercised, let's just say, from the Zapruder film and every other film in order to have actually occurred, right, right. during that time period. Now, like I said, we first confronted this in the first hour with Hanky, where I just simply gave him the option in his mind that, uh, you know, that even if this were all true, and I won't argue any of the points or that anything is being misrepresented or that anybody led anybody in these interviews, there's a possibility that memory could be failing these guys regarding a high-stress situation. I gave the example of a car accident, you know, where you you have a lot of detail being retained by someone who's involved in a, a high-pressure, high-speed, uh, you know, a fraction of a second event. And sometimes memory is altered, right? Um, so I gave him just that sort of thesis to work with. And, of course, he wanted to hear none of it, and believe me, I didn't even get to that with uh, with our friend Uncle Fester, did I? No, no. Yeah, another thing uh, people don't take into consideration is, you know, the, there was, you know, four motorcycles, Harleys, you know, that are very, very loud. These guys have helmets on. You know, they're focused on driving. Uh, it's very likely that they didn't even hear the shots. I mean, possibly, or even recognize the sounds that they did hear as shots until all of a sudden, you know, Kennedy's head explodes. And then it's like, you know, what the hell is going on? Well, right. And that's absolutely true. They're, they're Harleys. They're loud. There was, you know, crowd noise. You know how uh, even the lone nut crowd will tell you that, you know, Dealey, Char Dealey Plaza is an echo chamber, right? Uh, all of these things are actually true. Now, the observation... Were, were there sirens going too? Uh, the, the motorcycle, were, were there police sirens going at, at various times as well? Well, you know, I never really paid a lot of attention to that when I asked for accounts. I let these guys present me with whatever their version of the story was, right? right. Um, and a lot of them, you know, they're not going to report every single detail. They're going to give you the bullet points of what it is they recall. And this is where, again, I say it's a little ridiculous to make this assumption because you know our friend that they always talk about being splashed with the blood and everything else, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. You know, he, this – He himself had been hit. Well, yeah, he was hit so hard by brain matter and blood that he had felt as though he had been hit, right? Uh, yeah. You know, this this officer, I think it was in 1992, and uh, at some point I'm going to have to find a way to get, to get these videos out there. But uh, I know I'm not the only researcher that talked to him in the 90s, right, because he was actually uh, approaching retirement at the time. And uh, was really in a foul mood when it came to talking to people about the assassination at this point, which, you know, rightfully so for a lot of these guys because they had been hounded and pressed to support people's theories. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it was like a, a three-decade-long harassment for some of these guys, right? Yeah. You know, this guy had been angry, and I remember – here's the funny part. I remember him mentioning – this guy, Newcomb, who had written some articles, who had uh, put out – had been definitely distributed in underground publications 
uh, as well as I think a couple of, let's not call them mainstream publications, but more legitimate publications, like not stuff that was simply uh, Xeroxed and handed out, which used to be a lot of what went on in the research community. But a lot of Newcomb's assertions had been given out in that way over the years. Uh, a lot of the representations of his interviews, or at least in part, had been represented in print. Um, specifically, and without any prompting from me, because I had no desire to know about any other researchers' interviews, this gentleman gives me exactly the same thing, where it's like, listen, you know, this guy misrepresented me. I'm tired of other people misrepresenting what happened. You know, uh, actually, he was sort of on the side of believing that he had rode through a spray of like a cloud spray of, of just blood and maybe some other fluid in the air. Okay. That's his assertion. And it happened so quickly that, and, and believe me, like I said, not only me, but, uh, on the internet, I'm very sure. And, and here's what I, what I can do. I can't give you a link right away, but I'll tell you what, if you look at uh, a guy named, uh, Mark Oaks, who uh, who had what he used to call uh, JFK Real Assassination Witnesses, I think it was called. Um, he distributed videotapes, sold these things, he used to sell in Dealey Plaza, just like Bob Groden and everything else. Uh, he's since kind of stepped away. But this guy also had a tape of this individual. He didn't bring up Newcomb, but you can see that particulate matter story in his tapes. Um, and I know they're available out there. And, uh, you know, look up Mark Oaks and, and his research. You, you've seen pieces of a lot of the people that he interviewed in the 90s also. Uh, most famously, Oaks was the guy who tried to uh, push the Patsy Pascal film some years back, uh, kind of unsuccessfully. But anyway, no criticism to Mark. I'm saying that he captured virtually the same story from him that I did. All right. right. And. To a man, any of these guys that, that I spoke to, uh, you know, uh, a guy that uh, that people identify as Stavis Ellis, I, I in my notes probably, you know, mistranslated something and filed him under Stephen Ellis for years. Uh, Stavis Ellis is often credited with uh, with telling people that there were uh, strikes on the pavement uh, previous to where the alleged first shot could have possibly struck the limo, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if I think about it real hard, one of Fetzer's guys who he had pulled into his projects over the years, um, who I believe is dead now, used to be like a specialist on the windshield. Uh, and, and I know you can find his stuff in Assassination Science and Murder in Dealey Plaza, which, of course, Fetzer, during that discussion, uh, yeah, Douglas Weldon, I think it was his name. Um, yeah. He had even talked to, Ed, to Ellis and everything else about, you know, these different possibilities and scenarios. And, and I'll tell you something that's funny is that uh, during that interview with Fetzer, he was also asserting, well, you never read my books and you never read this person's work and you were never aware of this researcher. And every single time uh, I wasn't being, you know, facetious with the guy. I was telling him, no, I'm fully aware of it. Yes, I, I know about Costello's work. Actually, he cleaned up the Zabruder film pretty nicely, but it still doesn't prove the rest of his, you know, the rest of his assertions, <laughs> you know, right. stuff like this. It was like, yeah, I'm well aware of that work. It It's still garbage. Just because you printed it doesn't make it reality, you know. Right. Um, Just like but, when 
if he says it, that it's a fact. Well, pretty much, you know. Uh, well, I knew a Gold Shield detective that had arrested uh, Frank Sturgis, and Sturgis told him that he was involved in the shooting team. This also came up during the broadcast, by the way. I'm not pulling these things out of thin air for the listener. But, uh, you know, even that assertion. Now, anybody who knows Frank Sturgis or knows of Frank Sturgis or has ever talked to people that were associated with Frank Sturgis will tell you that the guy was, uh, you know, a bit of a, a bragging, uh, posturing, uh, you know, sort of guy who would, uh, you know, make some pretty bold claims that had no foundation all the time. And as for why he would, you know, admit to that, being that he was, you know, you know, take your pick here. Either he's a guy who runs his mouth and doesn't understand that he's making confessions, or he's a guy who's so slick that, you know, he might think not to blurt things out to a detective taking him into custody. You know, I'm just saying, you know, it just seems as though you might want to take your pick as to which guy we're talking about here. But, uh, you know, one of his uh, claimed shooter people, and, and to my shock and awe, uh, also including guys like Roscoe White shooting from the Grassy Knoll. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Roscoe Frank on the Grassy Knoll. Yep. Uh, which was pretty fascinating because I countered him with something I'm very sure he didn't expect, uh, you know, which was that, well, you know, that would be very interesting because his assertion was that White had delivered, you know, the headshot from the Grassy Knoll. Well, the problem is that... Uh, as I stated during that show, that somebody like Sherry Feaster, who's a trained crime scene investigator, who's actually a blood spatter analyst, you know, uh, literally doing the job of like, if you ever saw this TV show, Dexter, that was her job. Um, <laughs> you know, she turns around and looks at the evidence and recognizes that a grassy knoll shot that landed and actually scored a headshot on Kennedy is not verifiable through the existing evidence. In other right. words, folks, based on what she could observe from the existing evidence, you have no proof that a headshot landed. Now, if, if someone fired from the grassy knoll and missed, this is a different possibility. But his insistence that, you know, Roscoe White is shooting him, and it's based on the backyard photographs, which, I don't know, Rob, does that make a lot of sense to you, actually? Uh, I don't know. I mean, you, you got, I mean, of course, Roscoe White was in the, uh, Dallas Police Department and, uh, jo I guess joined about the same time that, that Lee came back to Dallas. Um, and of course, they were on the same boat that went over to J Japan together. They were in the Marines at the same time. Um, did they know each other? I don't know. You know, there, there's, there is some anomalies in that backyard photograph that I'm, I'm not, I'm not too sure about, uh, well, let me, but I've also well, seen me, some convincing me, analysis that it hasn't been altered, you know, but it's, it's hard to say for me. I'm not convinced okay. one way or the other. It's okay, but let's just, let's just go through something called logic, which we couldn't do with, with Fetzer. Um, okay. how about this? I'll grant you just for the sake of this discussion, the backyard photographs were altered and that's Roscoe White. I'll grant you that he knew Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, not saying that I agree with this normally, but just for the sake of this discussion, I'll grant you that he knew him, that he was uh, uh, somehow involved in the setup and everything else. Um, t 
tell me where in the discussion of the backyard photographs, even if he was involved in the setup of Lee Harvey Oswald, even if he knew him, he was uh, an asset being run by the ONI. Let's make the wildest assertions we want. Um, it doesn't put a rifle in his hand on the grassy knoll. No, not based on that. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. I mean, look, if I'm if I'm, you know, just throwing out things that make no sense, Rob, you know, I don't even think I don't even think that he claimed that that he was a, uh, you know, killed, killed JFK. I think uh, I think he more of his claims, at least from what I understand, were kind of cleaning up the uh, the witnesses afterwards. That's you know what I'm saying? But again, who who knows? Oh, yeah, but I'm talking about Fetzer's claims here, which was that he was putting a rifle in, you know, uh, White's hands on the grassy knoll, scoring the headshot. Okay. Zero evidence whatsoever. Well, that's what I'm saying here. I mean, look, is he a fascinating character? Is he worthy of study? Is it weird that his family is, you know, uh, completely involved in things and, you know, see the Ricky White fiasco from some years ago? if you'd like. And uh, you can also see that some of those assertions are even sketchy as to whether they were ever made. But anyway, that wasn't part of the discussion. I was just trying to get at the fact that he was putting a rifle in his hand on the grassy knoll and claiming that that's the headshot that killed Kennedy. Right. What is his response? Well, of course, the crime scene investigator does an amateurish uh, presentation, and therefore uh, I, I put no validity in that. Well, uh, thank you, sir. I'm glad that you are uh, fully qualified to judge someone's forensic credentials and the quality of their presentation. But, you know, hey, like I said, why let logic get in the good way, you know, in in the way of a good uh, BS story here? Um, So all these things go on. But meanwhile, the centerpiece of this mess, and like I said, I cut off the Judy Baker discussion because he started to go into that. Well, Ed Haslam proved that. And I'm like, he wrote a book, he did an investigation. That doesn't mean anything to me, especially because, you know, there was a version of that book that didn't include Judy Baker before. Um, You know, (laughs) but either way, I, I said, let's leave Baker alone. Let's leave a few of these other things alone. And let's try and talk about what's verifiable, what the quality of the evidence is in all of your assertions, even though. Like I said, I seem to be somebody who's skilled with being able to run my mouth. I cannot possibly pack the 80 pounds of BS into the 10-pound bag of time that Fetzer does during any one of these speeches that he gives. Not only on his own show, but anytime he's asked to be a guest. And, you know, if you challenge or ask him to verify one of his assertions or present something like, well, evidence... Um, you're often confronted with a pretty, pretty rough reaction. Um, yeah, he takes it very personally. He sure does, doesn't he? I think uh, the best two lines were that uh, that uh, both Carmine and I had our heads up our backsides and had no awareness of any of the evidence in the case, and and we were wasting his time because we had never studied anything. Yeah, I tell you, I tell you one thing, there, Chuck. That man has provided some of the most entertaining audio that I've ever listened to. And, and of course, one of them was on your show. One of them was on Clyde Lewis's show. One of them was on his show, uh, when he was getting the run around from the FBI. And, uh, uh, was it, 
I forget what that guy's name is. Oh, man. It's escaping me right now. But he, he got ambushed on another show about 9-11. <laughs> um, and he st- stuck around for two hours arguing. It was just hilarious. Well, what's hilarious? Come- yeah. You know, what's hilarious about the Clyde Lewis thing is that here's the here's the funny part. Clyde Lewis's premise that night was to talk about how conspiracy theorists are not – just, uh, you know, cherry picking facts in order to fit their fantasies, basically. Um, and honestly, and in all fairness, with all of Fetzer's wackiness aside, he gives a good presentation on how conspiracy makes more logical sense than the lone nut scenarios in most cases. Um, because people generally work together, you know, uh, serious things are not usually accomplished by a lone wolf. You know, regardless of what they tell you about, you know, nowadays with the war on terror and the lone wolf attacks. But uh, uh, we'll leave that aside. Um, So he was supposed to go on and discuss conspiracy theory in general. And rather quickly, what it derailed into was, you know, Fetzer's, if you don't deny the Holocaust and you don't believe the Jews run the world – and you don't believe that the Zionist conspiracy is the absolute enemy of everyone, you know, then you're a shill and, you know, you must be a Jew and you must have Jew friends and, oh, you're, you're a, you know, you're a gatekeeper and you're one of these people that's, uh, you know, a, a prevaricator on behalf of the elites. And yeah, that was the discussion that he devolved into simply because Clyde tried to lead him away. From, you know, let's not go into Holocaust denial. Let's talk about just conspiracy theories in general based on this article that had come out, you know, in recent days. And the funny part about that is their producers came to me before that show and asked me who could speak about this particular subject, you know, eloquently. Sadly, I'm the guy who put him on that show, basically. And I pointed that out to him in the first couple of minutes when he was on with me. I don't think he knew what to do with that, except, well, I've never heard of Clyde Lewis before. And, well, that was ridiculous, you know, and that was it. Uh, You know, not like, hey, maybe I, you know, overreacted. Maybe I shouldn't have thrown a temper tantrum on national radio over, you know, 200 stations terrestrial across the country uh, simply because somebody doesn't want to go with my Holocaust denial scenarios. Um yeah, maybe, but uh, I guess I'm nitpicking, aren't I, Rob? No, no. I mean, and just to illustrate a point, mm-hmm. you know, this, this guy, Jim Fitzgerald, he believes that LBJ was the mastermind of the assassination. He believes that George Bush was involved in the assassination. He believes in Madeline Duncan Brown. He believes in Judy Baker and on and on and on. And, like I said in my uh, Thanksgiving Day show, it, 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 he just pulls stuff from here, there, everywhere, and just makes it into a just gigantic amalgamation of horse shit. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know what? You're being too kind, Rob, because let's let's break down a couple of the other contradictory things here, okay? Uh, you know, not only does he believe that the the Watergate people. You know, don't don't forget, he believes in the E. Howard Hunt scenario. He believes that Frank Sturgis was one of the shooters. He believes that Dallas police were part of the conspiracy directly to murder the president. Not the cover up, not the ineptitude, not any of that, but the conspiracy directly. 
He believes that photos were altered even to the point of uh, something that is less than a, a, a half, you know, a half inch squared, you know, on yeah. Ike Altkin's photograph. Right. Um, he believes that people have been intimidated since day one to not tell the truth about the film alterations. The Zapruder film was not only tampered with in his estimation, it was completely fabricated. Um, but nearly everything is a fabrication in Fetzer's mind, except that which he fabricates. You know, and and to illustrate this point a little further, not only does he buy the, you know, the Baker scenario, and you got to involve Baker, you got to involve, you know, that, that whole team of nonsense that went on there. At one point, he was a James Files supporter, but, you know, everybody's got their limits. Um, well, he but, even supported the Greer shooting there at one, at one point in time. Well, yeah, even into the 90s, uh, during these long, and I do mean long presentations he used to give on the assassination. Uh, in particular, there, there's, there's a DVD out there that I believe is seven hours in length. Um, it, I, I kid you not, Rob. I'm sure you've never sat down and watched it because you're not a glutton for punishment like me. But when you sit and watch it, you can hear him actually support the idea that though there is no photographic evidence that the driver uh, likely shot Kennedy, uh, it is still possible because people smelled gunpowder and things like that at the hospital. And, you know, Yarborough smelled gunpowder. I don't know where, you know. But, but anyway, because people smelled gunpowder, allegedly, uh, you know, that there's still a possibility that the limo driver may have shot Kennedy as well, right? Plus, he's got a guy on the, on the records building. He's got a guy on the grassy knoll. He's got a guy up front. He's got at least two shooters in the depository. He's got one or two, I forget, in the Dow Tex building, um, you know. Well, yeah, he, I mean, he belongs in the Mac Wallace, you know, in the, on the sixth floor. Uh, well, you have to have Mac Wallace in order to even begin to hang it on LBJ, right? So, oh, yeah. you know, LBJ, uh, you know, George H.W. Bush, uh, you know, a whole bunch of anti-Castro Cubans, uh, former CIA guys like E. Howard Hunt had to be on the ground as well. Uh, you know, all of these things, including the limo driver, and even possibly some of the police, which he uses as sources on the one hand, but then tries to sweep into the grand conspiracy on the other hand, right? Um, all of them have to be involved in order to pull off the scenario that Fetzer's talking about. Plus, tell me somebody that ever accounted for 14, 16, 12 shots. In any way, shape, or form, don't don't give me the whole thing about, well, there could have been suppressors, there could have been silencers. Fine. Tell me anybody that saw evidence of 14 shots or 16 shots or whatever the number is at this point, having, you know, all of a sudden converged in this hail of gunfire in Dealey Plaza that day. Find me a witness who actually states that. Yeah, while the limo is stopped. While the limo stopped, right, which would require the alteration of, let me see, I I believe I counted seven different home movies, okay, Um, 
more than 150 people would have to essentially not see it. Because remember, it's not a matter of, well, gee, there were 12 witnesses that said there's more than 150 in the immediate vicinity. Okay. A lot of people don't realize that because it doesn't look like that on the Zapruder film. You see a handful of people, but there's a lot of people at that corner, you know, of, of, you know, Houston to, you know, Houston, Maine and Elm, the three streets. There's a lot of people before we get into where I think there is the, uh, you know, the triangulation area, which wasn't even a complete triangle in my estimation, but Either yeah, way, closer to the depository, yeah, down that way, there's a ton of people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, many deep on the street, and I'm telling you, I, I, you know, the numbers vary a bit, but I promise you, if you counted 130, you will go under the mark of the amount of people that had eyes on it, you know, within, say, half a block, a full block, and not even a large city block, right? Right. You know, so... All of them have to have not seen the limo stop, but also not seen the rest of the motorcade. Because, you know, I mean, if the limo stopped for 30 seconds, the rest of the motorcade might have been interrupted by that. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. And and what I think gets confused also is after the assassination takes place, you know, you have the, the lead car. You have the limo and the follow-up car speeding up and getting the hell out of Dealer Plaza. And the rest of them are like, don't really know what happened and likely slowed down or came to a stop. You know, irregardless of what was going on in front of them, you know, just from the confusion. You know, you got people running into the streets after the assassination. They would have had to slow down or stop, you know, to make their way through all these people. Um well, yeah, there, there's a, a, there's at least two motor, motorcycle officers who did stop immediately, uh, you know, uh, on the curb of the knoll, right? So you have that part of one lane being blocked by that. You have individuals trying to cross over because, as we've all noted, uh, in the immediate aftermath, I mean, uh, there were people trying to run up the knoll. There were people also running toward the depository and away from the depository. Like you said, plenty of confusion Plenty of reason for drivers to be cautious, slow down, and maybe even stop after the event. Right. Now, what do you make of this uh, this claim of one of the motorcycle officers actually riding like halfway up the grassy knoll uh, and then getting off their, their bike and then running up behind the, uh, the fence area? I think they alleged that it was Jackson um, doing this. Yeah, that's because they couldn't get Smith to verify it when the story went around before. Uh, you know, it, well, I mean, they do have S.M. Holland and they do have Lee Bowers saying that they saw, you know, an officer riding their bike up the knoll about halfway or two thirds of the way up and abandoning their bike. But I don't know what kind of a view they actually had of this. Or, I mean, I'm sure Lee Bowers, it would have been very hard for him to see. You know, he might have. Uh, been mistaken about where this bike was actually left but you know that's not supported by any photo or film evidence i mean i do you do see a bike being left at the curb on the right hand side of elm street mm-hmm. down toward the knoll but actually you know nobody actually riding up or a bike on the knoll you know 
Well, see, and notice I said that there were bikes left at the curb. There was there was uh, two, I believe. You know, and and I'm willing to even concede that somebody who believes that a bike was run up onto the knoll might have kind of convoluted the idea that this guy, you know, uh, dismounted his bike and ran up there because a couple of them did, right? Um, just like the whole thing with there are secret service men everywhere, you know, don't forget uh, Fesser also supports the Chauncey Holt thing, uh, who... Yeah. You know, the guy who falsified Secret Service credentials in order so that there could be all kinds of fake Secret Service guys all over Dealey Plaza. And it turns out if you very carefully read the testimony from these guys and you put it together, you can find one Secret Service agent running around with his credentials on the knoll. And it makes sense. His name was Lem Johns. You know, it, it just, you got to take a step back once in a while and say, okay, what do we have here in the testimony that even begins to make sense of these assertions? And I don't necessarily mean the accounts after researchers have gotten after them about their theories and after memories have faded and after they've been influenced, because no matter what, when somebody interviews these people, unless they're extremely careful, they begin to alter their perceptions a bit because even just by questioning, I'll tell you this, Rob, uh, let me, let me just throw a, 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 for instance at you. Have you had something to eat today? No, I have not. Okay. Are you sure you didn't have something to eat today? Because you know, it's already noontime where I am and it's possible that you might've forgotten eating something. Maybe you got up in the morning and ate something now. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Now, now, now look at it this way. Now, this is a very simple, very, you know, childish, amateurish kind of example. But here's the deal. In your mind, even at this very moment, you're probably thinking, no, I know I didn't eat anything. But give it a couple days, Rob. Right? If I come back at you with that question again, and I say, remember when I asked you on this particular day, if you ate something in the morning, you know, do you think that maybe you could have been mistaken about that? Now, if I ask you this two, three days later, you know, today, today being a, a Saturday, let's just say, and I ask you about it on Monday after you've gone to work and you've done some other things, I mean, that's really not at the top of your priority to recall exactly what you ate before the afternoon on this particular day, right? Yeah, I would tell you, I don't know, I might have, it's possible. See, now all of a sudden it became possible, whereas you were sure it didn't happen. Now, right. this is a very small detail, and it's not about a historical event, and I get that. But my point is that by challenging a point, letting it sit in there, and then coming back at you later about it, about a very minor point, about something that you know you would have direct knowledge of, you weren't under any sort of stress, nobody's pressuring you to change your answer, but simply by changing the character of the questions I just asked, now we have a slightly different assertion coming, don't we? Yeah, and, and especially if you if you throw this little scenario in, if you you know if I was sitting out on my front porch, um, you know before before we started talking, and you know I have of course I haven't ate anything, but it, say I was out on my front porch before we started talking, and uh, one of my neighbors uh, was you know on the front porch of their house, and a car drove by and shot him. <laughs> okay. Then I'm in a traumatic state of mind. 
before we speak and you ask me, did I eat? I've, I'd probably say, I have no idea. I don't, you know, uh, but yeah, things would become screwy even a couple of days later because the shock would have wore off and it, you, I really don't know what I would remember. Right. This is why when people interview individuals to try and determine what happened, whether a crime occurs, an accident, anything else, they try and get to them right away because over time perceptions change, whether there's a high stress situation or not. Now, going back to these motorcycle cops, these interviews that they're allegedly citing, Okay, and even my own interviews, I can tell you that I, I, I spoke to people like Ebersol, and I got virtually nothing out of them. Now, I could make assertions about some of that discussion and tell you that uh, based on the fact that he seemed to be very elusive about just about anything I asked, uh, he was covering things up. Now, my commentary is all you have. Okay, you haven't heard the tape. And even if you did hear the tape, it's now influenced by the commentary I presented to you ahead of time. Right. You don't know what my agenda is. My agenda is, you know, a sort of a skew to begin with because I don't for a second believe that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone and that this is a matter of ineptness. And in fact, a guy like Ebersol, who, by the way, in case anybody doesn't know, was the man who was actually in charge of the x-rays being taken at Bethesda you know, the night they brought Kennedy's body in. Very controversial figure in the research community. Not too many people got to speak to him. But my point is that my agenda, my way of asking the questions, had something to do with the amount of information I drew from it. And the case is the same with everybody that goes after these guys. Like if you take a look at, you know, David Lipton's line of questioning, when it comes to medical witnesses, you know, he's got an agenda in mind. So he's looking for things that are going to support a particular agenda. And the same is true of these other people. Now, I take somebody else's interviews, I can reinterpret them to hear something entirely different, you know, and that's the thing is, well, you know, there was this time where it nearly came to a stop. Well, it could be that in their minds, things slowed down to that point. It could be also, as I stated, if you look at the Zabruder film closely enough, a good quality copy of it, you'll see that the brakes were applied on the limo. So there was certainly a serious deceleration, literally. Now, is it easily observable in the extant Zabruder film? No, but at careful examination understanding the discontinuity of time based on the low quality of the film. Okay. Because of the, you know, there's, there's a problem with the fluid of motion in that film for certain. Okay. It's choppy. Easy way to put it. Yes. But you know, if you look hard enough, you can see the brake lights come on. You can assume that that caused some sort of deceleration. The car wasn't moving very well to begin with, but it doesn't, doesn't give us a stop and neither do these witnesses really and even if they did you'd have to look for other evidence one of the least reliable things you know when it comes to uh, uh, any sort of crime scene is generally the witnesses who are focused on something else you know those who are there to observe Kennedy 
let's just say, might not have paid very much attention to other people in the crowd. Most of them, the majority of them, outside of the early reports from, say, like Mel Couch and a couple other people, you know, they weren't looking up at the depository either, right? Yeah. Because they were focused on something else. So every witness has a bit of an agenda to begin with. And when you begin to question them in certain ways and they've been questioned over and over again and they've been led down certain paths and asked, well, what do you think of this scenario and what do you think of this idea? Even if they have the greatest intentions in the world to retain a complete photographic mental record of the event, they wind up becoming influenced by the continuous questioning, by the reexamination of by the assertions of others. And I assure you that all of these guys that Newcomb spoke to, every last one of them that I ever spoke to, and if you want to read something really funny, a guy named Larry Sneed put together a book called No More Silence. And if you sit there and do a little graph on that and figure out how many guys were involved in each event, so on and so on... (laughs) You'll find that there is all sorts of overlap. There's two guys picking up particular pieces of evidence. There's three guys who, uh, you know, cuffed somebody. There's, uh, you know, four guys who arrested one individual when they weren't even in the same cars. There's, you know, three guys driving the same car. All sorts of crossovers there. Not even from a nefarious point of view, not saying that they're trying to create you know, disinformation, not saying that they're being in, you know, uh, uh, agents of influence to only push the official story, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not even assigning them agendas. I'm just telling you that out of the more than 200 people that Sneed spoke to, you can't make a straight story out of it years later. And part of it is because of these interviews and the way they're conducted. So, you know, you got to keep that in mind as well. But meanwhile, yeah, I, don't know how, you know, I don't know how uh, honest or how much of an honest researcher Newcomb was either, because this is the same guy mm-hmm. who altered photos of Carrie Thornley at Harold Weisberg's request to, to make him look more like Oswald. So, and of course, he was writing a book, an LBJ did it book. So it, it you know it's hard to tell what 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 you know what exactly his agenda was and and uh how honest of a researcher he he was right and absolutely uh, uh you know was involved in one of the worst Kennedy assassination books I don't know how it got re-released but one of the worst Kennedy assassination books who just to sum it up in one sentence is you know, the, the premise of which is, uh, uh, you know, the Secret Service and the police uh, were the uh, were, were the conspirators, uh, basically. Yeah. And that was a book called okay. Enemy Within. And it was awful when they first released it. It was awful when they re-released it. And Newcomb's stuff is questionable. I, I yeah. challenge the listener, examine the veracity of all of his work on the case. And then tell me why it is you would trust him to do something that requires the precision of conducting an interview without contaminating the witness. Seriously. Right. Yeah. Now, another thing I noticed, Chuck, is 
of course, you know, when, when you hear it straight from Fetzer's mouth, of course, it's a, it's a flying uh, shit storm of information coming at you, you know, point after point after point after point, you know, where he, he tells it all in, in 20 seconds. But, you know, when you, when, like I went back and I watched the, uh, the original videos where they lay this whole scenario out of these four horsemen, you know, the, the, the four motorcycle cops and, and, you know, they, they play the tapes, they, they, they make their evidence, but, you know, they're, they're doing the same thing in long form that Feather does in short form. They're pulling pieces from here, there, and everywhere. I mean, they got interviews from Whitney, Newcomb, uh, Griggs, and they got stuff from, you know, the War Commission, the HSCA, the AARB. They're making leaps and bounds of speculation, uh, and mixing it all together. Um, you know, it's just, you know, when you, when you put it all to, you know, when you're trying to form an agenda, you know, that's, that's what they do. They put, they pull a piece from here, a piece from there, and you're not getting the whole story. You're not getting the whole interview. You're not getting everything they said. You're getting whatever supports their theory, which happens to be, you know, a extended limo stop. And this is all that's presented. Uh, you know, we don't get the whole story. You know, Hargis told many times, many times over that, you know, at least he said, you know, maybe it came to a rolling stop, you know, maybe, you know, less than five miles an hour for approximately four to six seconds is what I've always heard. Right. But, you know, they've got Secret Service agents coming off the car, fanning out. You know, they've got uh, guys walking in between the limo and the Queen Mary, uh, you know, none of which is, is supported by anything other than, you know, these little snippets and, and, and I guess it's just little bits of information that they put together to form this, this narrative that they want us to believe. And it's, it's quite frankly, the most dishonest research that I've seen in a long time. Well, you know, what, what's funny is that it's really the more prolific version of what goes on with uh, the majority of what happens. And I'm, I'm sorry to say this, and it makes me kind of unpopular among people that write books nowadays, but here's the truth. Uh, most of these people that are presenting these books that are really hawking to sell their particular line of crap to you about the assassination – what they do is exactly the thing that the Warren Commission was being called on the carpet for immediately by people like Mark Lane. Now, I've got my issues with Mark Lane, but one thing that he was extremely accurate about was that the commission started with a scenario, with a line of reasoning, with a storyline. Oswald did it. He acted alone. And what did they do? They attempted to procure the evidence to support their already, you know, solidified conclusion. And this is precisely what's being done, unfortunately, by those who are identified as the conspiracy theorists. And quite honestly, I, I don't like the term, not because I feel it's a bad thing, but uh, it's just inaccurate. I don't theorize about conspiracies. I analyze them. So I'll accept conspiracy analyst as a as a title. But theorist, no, I don't make up theories. Uh, other people do, and then they look for evidence to support it. 
They discard the context by which the evidence comes to them. They discard the, you know, tangential pieces of evidence that come along with any of the evidence that supports their conclusions. They assemble it together. And here is almost how, well, 90 out of every 100 JFK books that I've ever read is constructed. Here's the crime. Here's the official story and what basically happened in Dealey Plaza. Here's all the crap that I have collected to support my theory. Now I'm going to tell you what really happened because I'm the only one who figured it out. Now, does that sound a little backwards, T-Rob? It does. You know, it does. But I think that's what most people do. You know, when when they're... They're coming at this from a conspiracy or through a conspiracy lens, I guess. Um, you know, because look, if it, was, if it was so cut and dry, Chuck, we, we'd have this thing solved by now, but it's not. It's convoluted as hell, and there's a lot of angles to the assassination that people could uh, pursue, and no real answers anywhere, uh, concrete answers. So that, that's what we're left with is mostly speculation. Of course, you know, some things do support evidence of a conspiracy, but, uh, you know, I think these guys with the, with the you know, these films that, you know, cause once you, once you do a film or once you write a book, you know, your, your theory is out there. This is your baby. You know, no matter what comes down the pike after this, you, you know, you got to hang on to it, you know, kind of like Hank, Hanky does, <laughs> you know, no matter, no matter no matter what new evidence comes about that, that, that uh, you know, doesn't go along with your theory, you, you know, you got to put blinders on and not even address it or see it or anything. You know, he's, you know, Bush did it and here's, here, here's his so-called evidence. And, uh, you know, he can't really, uh, go back and change things. You know, once it's, once it's in a film or once it's in a book, that's, it, that's it. You're married to it. And, uh, well, yeah, you know, that's one of the, I, I think I made you laugh one time in a private conversation, and, and I've said this before publicly, but not too much. It used to be a big joke, and uh, and I'm the source of this particular joke, right? Uh, let me let me do it with the with the uh, the hanky, and then go into the uh, well the Johnson angle of the assassination. Which, by the way, uh, by the time your listeners get a hold of this, I may have actually secured an interview with Roger Stone. But, um, <laughs> so oh stay tuned, um, <laughs> but, but put that aside and all fun aside, once you take away some of their evidence, which has been misrepresented, misunderstood, and you've basically pulled the rug out. Once you do something like discredit the Mac Wallace fingerprint. Which, by the way, in my estimation, is the only real mistake that a guy like Walt Brown ever made, is supporting that. Other than that, you know, that guy is 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 one of the people that we should be turning to to do some of the huge presentations, to do what Fetzer does, but, you know, with actual evidence, reality, facts, you know, stuff like that. Uh, th- this is the guy. But... Once you pull away something like the Mac Wallace fingerprint because, gee, we'll compare it to a verifiable record like his military record, you know, like Joan Mellon did. Um, Once you do something like that and you lose the linchpin to your conspiracy theory, uh, 
what happens is for a lot of these, because it's mostly men, let's be honest, mostly men yeah. are, are involved in the, uh, the conspiracy industry. <laughs> okay. Um, and, and gee, I almost sound like one of these lone nut guys when I say stuff like this. Sorry. But facts are facts. When they're involved in this industry, it's almost like going out drinking and, you know, suddenly when your evidence has been pulled away, you wake up the next day with a headache next to a very ugly chick. And guess what? You don't want to admit that she's an ugly chick. You don't want to be rude and crude and God knows cause a scene for all of your neighbors to see. So you stick with the ugly chick and you keep her. And uh, even though she's got a horrendous laugh, horrendous personality, but with your beer goggles on, you seem to have thought it was a great idea. Yeah, a lot of these researchers have, uh, you know, done the wake up with next to an ugly woman the next day scenario as far as I'm concerned. And, um, you know, some of them, well, <laughs> some, almost all of them won't cop to it when they've made a mistake because they are absolutely married to their book, their film, their show, their presentation, their tour, their conference. And, yeah, you're exactly right. They're married to it, so they can't possibly lay it down. You know, uh, sometimes you got to just know when it's over and when you've made a mistake. You yeah, know. and cop to it. You know, I, I, I don't understand. I mean, personally, you know, because, you know, I, I, I'll be honest. I, I am a conspiracy theorist. I will theorize on things, but I'm also an analyst, so I can analyze myself, mm-hmm. which most of these people don't have the ability to do or they're not willing to do it. Um, but you know, if I get something wrong, I have no problem whatsoever getting on here and being like, look, you know, I got this wrong. Um, you know, I was wrong or, or, you know, this other person had it wrong or, you know, there's no shame in it. And I think people, you know, will respect that. And, you know, trust you more if you cop to a mistake. You know, if Jim Fetzer came out tomorrow and said, look, people, I've been a fool for the past 20 years, you know, and, uh, you know, the, uh, the blinders are off. I see, I see the error of my ways and, you know, I'm going to start, start fresh, start anew, you know, mm. um, some people would forgive him. Some people wouldn't, um, you know, he's done a lot of damage to the community at this point and, I don't know if I can forgive him for everything that he's perpetrated on all this, but, uh, you know, but I, like you said, people are just not willing to do that. And I don't know why. Right. And you know what? I wouldn't suspect him of some of the things that I suspect him of, uh, you know, if he had turned around and copped to some of his mistakes. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you and I have that mentality about, listen, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I'd rather have the truth than, uh, than run around pushing crap at other people so that they got to figure out that I'm full of crap too. You know, um, I certainly would prefer somebody correcting me than me running around and saying things that are easily provably fictitious, you know, but, uh, but unfortunately, no, we're not going to find that with him. I I mean, I, I would actually have some respect for him because in the very early days, it seemed as though he was making an honest effort. He was still making mistakes, but he was making an honest effort by bringing people together. It seemed 
that uh, that had some expertise. You know, when he talks about, well, the world authority on the human brain, yeah, he was, fine, I, I'll give you that. When you tell me that David Mantic can read an x-ray, yeah, you're right. Uh, you know, when you tell me that uh, a lot of the guys that you brought together seemed like a good idea at the time, but, you know, maybe possibly some of the things that have been, you know, disproven through more modern techniques, re, you know, uh, other evidences emerged, et cetera, et cetera. If you could adjust, if you could revisit your own views and see the error of your ways, improve them, you know, then it looks like you're actually researching, investigating, and in search of the truth. And being honest. And being honest. Uh, but this hanging on to your theories for dear life, regardless of what evidence is placed in front of you, uh, you know, personally attacking any individual who challenges you, this is not the way to conduct yourself. And I got to say, I don't know how people would conduct themselves in life, you know, if this is the way they handled everything. That no matter what, you know, since at the age of five, you thought Santa Claus was real, uh, you know, I'm not letting go of that. He's real. There may not be any evidence for him, but it's because nobody wants you to know the truth. You know, uh, I, I literally said to a guy who uh, who attacked me on Google about this, you know, listen, the Easter Bunny's not real either, no matter how many stories you write about him. Um, yeah. You know, and he said, well, can you prove that? Which I, you know, I left it at that. What am I supposed to do with a guy like that, Rob? I'll tell you one other thing, too, and I've said this about, about Judith Baker. If she came out this year, next year, two years from now, and said, listen, I have absolutely done this, you know, in I have perpetrated this as a fiction, and I have been, you know, doing a performance art piece for the past 20 years for you people, and it's over now. You can return back to the truth. You know what? I'll respect that, too. But unfortunately, Rob, I don't think we're going to get that. We're going to get people that are going to still push their outdated theories at us, uh, whether it's, you know, Oswald absolutely bought the gun and did the shooting regardless of whatever other evidence comes up, or it's, you know, 80 different guys shooting from 20 different angles in a hail of gunfire that, uh, you know, would have rivaled uh, just about any battlefield in Vietnam at the time, uh, wh whatever you want to do. You know what? I think we're still going to be stuck with these guys. And unfortunately, I'm going to disagree with you about a couple of things real quick. You said okay. that we need people out there to do shows that are pushing against a guy like Fetzer. You're doing it right now, sir. You know what? Uh, Leno Sanic, in a neutral way, collects people's accounts, authors' accounts. He's got a pretty good archive I'm going to leave him alone, but he's another guy who started with Fetzer and, you know, had to let him go, just like the Scholars for 9-11 Truth, just like uh, Veterans Today and everybody else who after a while, no matter how seemingly fringe they are, can't seem to walk on the same fringe as Fetzer. Um, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, no matter what, there are people like you. Uh, I make my efforts. I focus on a lot of different things, but I always come back to the assassination, uh, you know, and there are other individuals out there that are making efforts. Uh, you know, you know who some of them are. There is a counterbalance. There are people doing good work. 
you know, our friend Carmine is coming out with uh, his book, Two Princes and a King, pretty soon. That's going to have loads of evidence in it. Joan Mellon is still writing. She's an excellent writer. Walt Brown put out 30,000 pages of chronology. 30,000 pages. I'm telling you that the index has more pages in it than Bugliosi's book. There's still good work going on. There's people like, I like Jim Douglas, you know, variants with a couple of things. You know, no researcher do I agree with 100%. The best of the best, usually I come up to about an 80% level. And trust me, that's probably, well, eh, maybe a half or three quarters of a researcher to every 300, uh, maybe, (laughs) that come up to that level in my estimation. But there is good work going on, and it's just a matter of trying to get people interested in the good stuff and to steer them away from the garbage. Which, by the way, you know, we only discussed two hours of that show, just in brief, couple of notes. Gail Nix Jackson came on in the third hour. Uh, Brent Holland, who's another guy I have disagreements with, he wrote a book too, but he does Night Fright Radio. He was on in that third hour. Nice guy, no matter what you think of him. Nice guy, and he's done some pretty good work as far as making presentations about the assassination, I would say. Um, You showed up briefly. (laughs) You know, the hitman showed up briefly. And then in the fourth hour, what was scheduled? Well, ready for this one. John Hankey, Jim Fetzer, and Peter Dale Scott and Jim Mars were invited to all attend a roundtable, okay, along with myself. And, of course, Carmine Savastano was with me the entire four hours. Uh, These people were invited to join the roundtable, and guess what happened? Well, John Hankey might have had a prior commitment. We knew that going in, so I'll put him aside. But Jim Fetzer, who had first said he would go for the roundtable, actually didn't allow his ego to bring him back to the round table to deal with us again. He bowed out and it was me, Carmine. And well, what was it? The hitman. I think Steve Rowe called in at one point. Um, and there you go. That was yeah. the end of it. Just us wrapping up what happened. But either way, the focus of this show obviously is about Jim Fetzer. And I, I know I run my mouth a lot, Rob. I'm sorry. That's, you know, I'm the talk show host who actually talks, uh, you know, unlike some people who conduct an interview by going, well, tell me what you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave that alone. Um, but, but we know who we're talking about. Uh, yeah, I actually participate in the interviews. I will challenge people. I don't challenge everybody on every single aspect. But, you know, really, truthfully, Fetzer threw about 30 really outlandish uh, you know, uh, uh, suppositions at us, you know, every five minutes or so. And, uh, yeah, I would say, uh, and I only challenged him on maybe three, you know, cause uh, like I said, again, uh, if you think I don't take a breath, <laughs> Fetzer is the master at not taking a breath or a drink. That's about all you could. That's about all you could fit in edgewise there, you know. Well, I did. Um, I did the best I could, and you know what? I feel really good about it for two reasons. One, I think that I gave him the rope to hang himself to the listener who actually cares and has some knowledge. And two, 
I never lost my composure. Not once. Not even when, you know, he was basically starting to call me names, which got a little hairy with the Skype and everything, because he was literally ranting at us at one point, you know, yeah. uh, talking about us having our, our, our heads up our asses and God knows whatever. I forget what, uh, what the other things he said were, but, you know, that, uh, oh, completely okay. ignorant. Yeah. yeah. You're ignorant of this. And obviously you never read this and you don't know this person's work and you don't know about this. And I went, well. The one set of books I have at my feet right here, I, I know exactly all about that. Yes, I watched that conference. I did read all your books. No, I didn't mention that one. You, that that comment didn't get out there because the great Zapruder film hoax book uh, that he was like, and you didn't even mention my third book. You know, uh, I, I said to him, but it didn't make it on air that, uh, well, you know, <laughs> that one wasn't worth mentioning, Jim. Not at all. Um <laughs> And, and and even even let's not forget the tirade about all of the other conspiracies that he felt obligated to insert into the JFK discussion on the JFK anniversary to make the point that, you know, everything is a mass conspiracy and contains a cover up and contains fiction and is an illusion and 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 if you don't believe me, this guy went from. Let's see, the Boston bombing to Sandy Hook to uh, to 9-11. And even if you think that some of these things are valid, tell me what the purpose of introducing all of those things into a JFK discussion when you know you've got 50 minutes to work with. Tell me what that actually accomplishes outside of basically giving yourself some alleged bona fides, you know, regarding your own studies of alleged conspiracy. What does it do? Virtually nothing. I had listeners say things to me like, if you would have listened to Fetzer by the end, you would have thought that JFK didn't actually die. Everything is a cartoon and that he was probably killed at the Boston Marathon by one of the fictitious kids that sang at the Super Bowl. Oh, Lordy. I love that. That pretty much sums it up, people. I mean, yeah. Unbelievable. So I know I've run my mouth, Rob, and I'm sorry. It is your show, but this is the way, you know, this is the way I handle myself when I'm not laying back and letting somebody else present things. But, you know, if there's somewhere else you want to go with this, I'm here for you, brother, and I'll actually shut up now. (laughs) You know, I wanted to to let you vent, you know, over here because I know you didn't get a chance to do it while actually on the show. And, uh, you know, we're talking about uh, people doing good work and don't discount yourself from that. Um, you know, your, your JFK myth shows with Carmine and, and uh, Matthew and, and uh, all the other guys that join in, Fred, Steve, me sometimes. And, you know, it's, it's all good work. And, and please tell people, Chuck, where they can uh, find your show, wh- when they can listen to your show. And, uh, and I'll put up uh, links uh, also over at TLG podcast, uh, dot com where they can find you but but uh let everybody know when they can hear you and where they can find you all right absolutely and and i'm never good at this so i'll probably mix it up a little or forget something but here goes the plugs uh yes i air on american freedom radio at americanfreedomradio.com it is the main place i have other affiliates and you may be able to catch me elsewhere but i air live from 8 to 10 p.m eastern on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. 
Replays, podcasts are available in a lot of places, but uh, we'll put all that aside. I have a website now, which is a, a centralized kind of place to be able to go get things, which is also collect, uh, connected to Neopolis Media. Uh, actually, I've got to talk to you about putting a link and, uh, you know, and something up for TLG because I want to make sure I get your graphics and everything right. And that is at ocelli.com. Yes, it's just that simple. My name is spelled O-C-H-E-L-L-I. And, oh, yes, the name of my radio show is The Ocelli Effect, by the way. But uh, The Ocelli Effect on American Freedom Radio, I told you the times, ocelli.com. That's where you'll be able to find a hub to anything from social media to projects I'm connected to. Eventually, the actual book on the Kennedy assassination that I'm working on which I'm doing my very level best to only put information in there that's either rare or has not been seen uh, in any other literature to my knowledge. Okay, so I'm being very careful about what it is I'm putting in there because aren't we all tired of buying JFK-related literature that has just nothing but rehashed, recycled, you know, and over and over and over again, the same stuff. And you read through 300 pages to get to the five pages of new information. I'm not going to do that to you. Uh, Carmine's book is not going to do that to you. But I don't have a release date or anything like that for it yet, but it is being worked on. So Ocelli.com, AmericanFreedomRadio.com, The Ocelli Effect. And, oh, yeah, there's also the uh, the YouTube channel, which is where my public – discussion about this started some years ago. I, I was really always behind the scenes before that, Rob, but uh, I went out on YouTube as the blind JFK researcher. Yeah, yes. that's the same guy. That's me. Um, and you can still find, I left even my videos that contain mistakes up there, guys, because um, I did make mistakes. I do that sometimes. I'm human being like, well, all of us, I thought. Um, so I actually make mistakes, but I did leave them intact. And uh, the only videos that have been pulled from that channel are things that were pulled by others. So there it is. That's everywhere you can find me real easy. And, Rob, it has been a, a pleasure and a privilege to be here on the Lone Gunman podcast. And anytime you need somebody to run their mouth, my friend, I'm here for you. Hey, that's awesome, man. I appreciate you coming on. and. And let's not wait so long next time we get you on here. That's totally my my bad. Um, but, yeah, so everybody check Chuck's stuff out. Head over to TLGpodcast.com for the links. I do have a dedicated button uh, for, for Chuck's show, and that will get you over to American Freedom Radio on my website and at neamg.com, a lot of his other stuff as well there. Chuck, thank you so much for joining me. And, uh Let's do it again, brother. Anytime, brother. All right, people. This is some bitches in the can beamed up the satellite down directly to your ears, people. This is your boy. Peace.
You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt Bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt Bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only.